Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good morning. Um, We're here today to talk about your wonderful work, Crossing the Color Line, Race, Sex, and the Contested Politics of Colonialism in Ghana, which, by the way, has been shortlisted for the Fagan Oliver Prize out of the UK, the African Studies Association. So congratulations on that feat. Thank you. Can you tell us how you became a historian? Oh, gosh, that's a, quite a question. So I, I really became a historian because it offered a path to pursue questions that I became interested in as a young person. So rather than a sort of love of history per se that brought me to the craft of, uh, of, of history, it was realizing that the kinds of questions that I was interested around identity and race um, could be answered in the most fruitful way through the lens uh, of history. And so that's what really brought me um, to study history. What kinds of questions? You said you talk about identity. Can you go a little bit further and then like extrapolating, you know, giving us, for an example, two questions that you pursued with this book? Well, the really the questions um, that I pursue in this book really uh, were rooted in the experiences that I had as an undergraduate study abroad student in Ghana. So in 1993-94, I spent uh, my junior year abroad studying at um, the University of Ghana and the Legon campus. And it, it was in that moment that I sort of realized the way that race operates in the U.S. was was very particular and unique to the United States. And I encountered a, a kind of different racial landscape, if you will, in Ghana. And it made me very curious um, about how race was working there, about questions around what it meant to be black there, how that was um, being constructed, and, and, and how the boundaries of blackness were operating there. And, and those questions really sort of stuck with me, and they've really been what I've pursued over, um, you know, the last, it's, I can't believe, over two decades um, in, in terms of my research. So in fact, even when I got back from that year abroad, I, I wrote my senior thesis. I, w- I went to uh, UC Santa Cruz and I wrote my senior thesis on language acquisition amongst uh, multiracial Ghanaians. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was really a question of the relationship between language and identity. And so those kinds of questions have continued to animate my research agenda um, they're, you know, they're very much uh, at, you know, part, part of what drives crossing the color line. And they're also the questions that animate um, uh, my new research as well. Okay. And why Ghana? Well, very practically at the, at the time uh, that I wanted to study abroad, there were two African countries that one could go to through the UC study abroad program, um, either Ghana or Egypt. And by that time, I was very much focused on West Africa 
um, in relationship to my family's own um, history, which is rooted in, in the Caribbean or part of my family's history. And so I was very much interested in pursuing those linkages. And so Ghana was the obvious choice. Uh, and and then once I got there, of course, I, I, I fell in love with it and, and um, had such a wonderful year. And it was just, a, you know, sort of this life-changing experience. Um, and, and again, those questions were kind of so foundational um, and so compelling for me that it has brought me back time and again um, to Ghana as the focus of my research. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the methodology um, that you took to write this engaging work and how you were able to weave together so many stories and, and broaden it to, you know, the broader themes uh, facing Africa as well as the world? In terms of methodology, I think what I initially did, first of all, and I think this is something that I would say is really important, um, especially for um, for PhD students who may be going into the archives, because Crossing the Color Line comes out of um, the research that I did for, for my PhD dissertation. And initially, when I wrote up that prospectus, I really thought I was going to be kind of continuing this question around the sort of historical position of multiracial people in, in Ghana and from the pre-colonial to the colonial and in, into the post-independence period. And when I got into the archives, um, first in Ghana and then in the United Kingdom, I was really surprised at the... Um, paucity of information that I was actually finding about multiracial people, but what I found instead was just this overabundance of material about interracial sexual relationships. So instead of kind of, you know, throwing my hands up in the air and going, oh my gosh, I can't write, you know, what I thought I was going to come to write, I just continued to follow that that archival trail, um, and and I really went with that, and it became... Um, you know, it, it turned into a much different project, but I think one that is really compelling and, and actually offers a kind of counterpoint to what we typically see in the literature around, um, you know, interracial sexual relationships, which is that in the context of the colonial period, in large part, um, they become prohibited because of the problems that the multiracial progeny pr present to colonial governments. Um, and in this case, the Gold Coast govern government, colonial government, um, remained very much focused on the relationships and not the progeny. Um, and so it offers a kind of a, a counterpoint to what we typically find. And I thought that was you know, actually quite, um, quite interesting and quite compelling. And so I just really, I went with that. And, and um, so I was able to amass this huge uh, archive of, of colonial documents um, mm -hmm. And within those colonial documents, um, spaces were opened up for people from the Gold Coast, Gold Coasters, now we say Ghanaians, um, to uh, offer their perspectives. Oftentimes, um, when I was working with the cases that were brought against European colonial officers for having relationships with uh, local African women, these cases were initiated by um, Africans who were disgruntled by these relationships. And so even though I was working largely with the colonial archive, um, I was able to find um, and use that archive and, and, and find African voices um, uh, and, and to read them carefully. And then uh, I 
complemented that with extensive research um, in the Gold Coast newspapers. So um, one of the wonderful things about doing research um, in Ghana is that um, from a very early period, um, Africans were setting up and running their own um, printing presses. And so there is a huge tradition of newspaper publication um, dating back to um, the uh, really sort of in a robust way the last quarter of the 19th century onwards. Um, and so you have a very large corpus of African-authored newspaper sources, which also um, provided a really sort of rich um, uh, source base for, for myself to work with in, in terms of yielding African perspectives on these questions. Um, and then finally, I, I worked really, really hard um, to track down uh, family members of the people that I was finding um, in, in the sources um, and to do uh, family histories and interviews. And so that was a kind of uh, third, um, third way. And then the last thing that I would just highlight is that, you know, of course the, the major absence um, across the various source bases um, are the voices of African women. Um, and that was obviously very frustrating, and anybody who works, um, you know, with, the, with these kinds of sources will, will understand the challenge that that um, presents. And so in addition to um, doing um, interviews with a number of women who um, were still living, um, I also used a, a kind of methodology which, which, I, um, which I call reading along the seams. So we're, we're familiar with the idea of reading um, along or against the archival grain. But this was, a, um, th this was something that I tried to do where I would look at disparate accounts, right? So if you had yeah, yeah. two men um, who were writing about the same women, perhaps um, a European officer who was charged with having a relationship with a woman, and um, a man who was trying to prove that that was actually the case. Um, mm -hmm. And so they were obviously, you know, they had very disparate intentions. The European officer would want to exculpate himself and so would want to um, show his innocence, whereas the African man would want to say this person is guilty. And in one case that I'm thinking of, it was, um, it was the African man's wife that was in question. But the two men both agreed on certain fundamentals about this woman's movement. And so it was that idea of like looking for these places in these accounts where they had they were they had very different um, uh, intentions in terms of what they were trying to prove, but they agreed on certain facts, and that would allow me to sort of be able to say, okay, um, they might be they might be in disagreement about why she's moving across the colony in in, in this particular way, but they all agree that she's doing that, and so that would give me an opportunity to kind of say, okay. So we know she was moving in this way. Why? Mm -hmm. And to be able to kind of speculate. So that was um, a methodology that I um, that I also employed when I could um, in order to try and um, figure out what women were doing when they were not speaking on their own behalf, but rather men were speaking for them um, or about them. And when women did speak, what did they say? So in the interviews that I did, so I did two really um, compelling um, interviews, one with a woman named Felicia Agnes Knight, who in 1945 married um, a British District Commissioner, Brandon Knight, um, and theirs was the fourth, um, the fourth marriage uh, that had happened across 1944 and 1945 
that through the colonial um, uh, office and the local government in, in the Gold Coast into complete panic um, about the sort of epidemic of, of, of interracial marriage. Um, and they actually, you know, described it in these kinds of pathological terms as a form of madness, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, Felicia Knight um, uh, married in 1945, and she um, had been in a relationship with Brendan for several years before um, their their church marriage. Um, they had they had wed by customary law, uh, and the colonial administration was doing everything that they could do to thwart their their um, their civil marriage. And so um, I interviewed her, and one of the things that I, I really remember coming out so vividly in that interview was the kind of fear that she had when Brandon went back. Um, so this was after their customary marriage, and she was pregnant, and he was going back to England to um, essentially ask for his parents' blessing um, to come back and marry Felicia. And his parents were um, a very prominent diplomatic family, um, and, and, and she, she and her family had this real fear that he wouldn't come back or if he came back, um, he would essentially say, I, I can't marry you and that she would be left, um, you know, to raise this child on her own. And I remember one of the things that she said was, you know, at, that, that women who got mixed up with white men, um, were not well regarded by other Africans. Um, and that's, of course, something that comes out very clearly in the newspapers where men, you know, who largely there are men who are writing and who are who disparage these kinds of loose, immoral African women who are, um, you know, uh, liaising with with white men. So it was, that, it was definitely that sort of fear of what, you know, what kind of fate would befall her if. Um, you know, if he didn't come back and, and make an honorable woman of her. And in the end, he did. And, and they did marry, even though um, on a number of occasions, the colonial government, um, you know, would, would write, you know, two days before their marriage was, you know, scheduled, they, they sent him off to, you know, across the colony. In the end, they, 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 they wed. And, and in fact, um, all, four of these, all four of these marriages that happened between 1944 and 1945 um, you know, the men stayed on. They continued to work through the end of the colonial period. Three of them stayed on through, uh, through independence. Um, so that was, but that was one of the things that I, that, that sort of fear of, of being cast out of society, um, uh, it, you know, if, if this marriage didn't happen. And then from the other side, the kind of um, sense of understanding what she was up against on the part of the colonial government and, and other Europeans who were making um, their lives um, very difficult, but also that real sense of strength and commitment to her family and to her um, relationship. And for, for readers, they might recognize the name because that's the, the, the my book opens with, with their story and it mm -hmm. opens with her standing at the gates of Flagstaff House as the mm -hmm. as ministers are coming in and, you know, and lambasting them for, for threatening to tear her family apart because um, during independence, when they were Africanizing the government service, um, you know, they, they uh, terminated his appointment. But in the end, Nkrumah, you know, called her up to the office and was like, what's the commotion? And she pleaded the case and, and Nkrumah granted them a special dispensation and he was able to stay on and work um, in, in, in Nkrumah's government. Um, so, so that kind of sense of real determination and being a kind of, um, you know, sort of fierce defender of her family was something that, that came through. 
Um, and, and then um, I'm thinking also of, of Mercy Quadrua Roth, who I also interviewed. Um, and she was a woman who uh, met her Swiss husband in the late um, 40s, and they, and they married um, in 1957, right on the eve of Ghana's independence. And again, this kind of sense of, of, of a very independent woman who um, had moved to Kumasi and, um, you know, was really trying to kind of make a life um, for herself and, and, you know, kind of wasn't, wasn't, was not on, on the one hand interested in courting disapproval from people, but also was really wanted, wanted to pursue, you know, the dream that she had for herself. And when she met um, her husband, Hans, um, you know, they, they had a very long courtship um, before they could actually marry, but for her, and they also had a customary marriage before they married um, in a civil ceremony. Um, and, and for her, that was what was, what was important was that sort of the commitment he was making to her, um, and, and being sort of her understanding herself as a respectable, um, married woman. So what kind of advantages would African women have through intermarriage or vice versa, white men with African women or black men with white women? Well, you know, the, 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 the range of these relationships is so great um, in terms of what they entail. And so when I speak of a woman like Felicia Agnes Knight or um, Mercy Quadua Roth, um, you know, these are women who had lasting marriages, decades long. Um, okay. and, and they set up homes and they were, um, they were well taken care of by their husbands, but obviously... Um, they take they took extraordinary care of their husbands as well, and, and so there's a real you, you see in those relationships a real sense of um, reciprocity. Um, in other cases, especially cases in which um, you know there there weren't formal marriages um, or maybe they were temporary relationships, the um, what the benefits were um, it's a lot more difficult to to answer. Um, and, and especially kind of at, at an emotional level, um, because it's difficult to sort of gauge, um, you know, how emotionally meaningful these relationships were. And I think that that's one of the things that I really hope comes out in the book is that, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to, um, kind of say with any, in a kind of emphatic way, um, what these relationships meant to the people who were in them. Um, but, you know, if you see the cover of the book, there's a very striking picture of the three interracial couples, two of whom are seated with their children, their young children, um, and the one woman who doesn't have a child, I think she's actually pregnant. Um, in all likelihood, those were French officers who had come over from the Ivory Coast um, and had um, married these mar married in in quotes because I don't we, again we don't know what form of marriage it took if it was a customary marriage okay. um, or or not um, we can pretty much say that it, it would not have been a civil or a church you know union um, and you know at that time period again people would have looked at those relationships and would have sort of dismissed them. Um, and in fact, in, in Ivory Coast, there was an indigenous ban against these, um, quote unquote, temporary marriages, which was why these men were in all likelihood coming over to, you know, procure 
native wives in the Gold Coast. Um, and so on the one hand, one could look at that picture and sort of just say, you know, these, re these relationships um, didn't confer respectability on the women. Um, the men didn't take them seriously. And in all likelihood, um, you know, the children would end up being abandoned by their fathers. Um, that, that could be true. But when you look at the picture, I think it's a little bit more complicated, right? I mean, the very fact that in 1915, this, this portrait was commissioned is something that's quite extraordinary. Um, and all of the people in the portrait are wearing, you know, their best. Um, and so there's a real um, kind of, of interest and commitment to memorializing these relationships. That, and you see that clearly um, in, in this image. And moreover, you know, the children seated on the mother's laps indicate that these relationships were at least several years old. Um, okay. And so, it, you know, it, it, I think what I find is that these, most of these relationships resist any kind of categorical reading um, and really force us to think about the ways in which emotion, affect, love can coexist with racism, with colonial power, um, with gender inequalities, all of those kinds of things. And that, um, you know, that love, love and racism are not um, mutually exclusive. They're actually can be quite inter interdependent practices. Um, so I think that that's something that, uh, that, um, that, that really comes out in this book um, and makes it quite difficult to kind of tally up um, what kinds of, of, of benefits accrued on, on either side. Okay. And you've talked about informants. How did you go by getting interviews? What were some of the issues that came up? I mean, wasn't an easy process. I mean, you know, what, what things did you do? So, um, I, you know, I'm one of those people that like, if I find a lead, I'm going to pursue it until the end <laughs> of the earth. Uh, and so, you know, for instance, uh, with these four marriages, so they took place between 1944 and 1945. And so that gave me a sense of the possibility that some of the people involved in the, in the marriages might actually still be alive. Um, and all I had to go on was, um, was the name of one of the couples because that was, it, it mentioned four marriages, but named only one. So I knew it was, okay. the last name was Knight. And I knew he was a district commissioner. Um, and so I, uh, I just started um, at the same time going through all the personal files um, in the archives, but also just um, using my extensive networks in Accra and saying, you know, do you know of uh, a Knight family, a mixed race uh, family? Uh, father was British, mother was Ghanaian. I didn't know, you know, if they had children or what, but I, I it, you know, so I just kept asking and asking and asking. Um, and eventually a friend of mine, uh, his mother said, you know what, we, we grew up across the street from them. And one thing led to another. And I ended up meeting um, the granddaughter of this woman. And, uh, and it was, it's funny, it was, it was the day, the day, the night before I was supposed to leave um, and come back to the U.S., and, uh, you know, she, she said, I was really late in the evening and she said, but if you, you know, 
um, if you come back tomorrow morning, I'll meet you and I can take you to see my grandmother. I can't guarantee that she'll want to talk with you, um, but we'll try. And, and she said, put on your Sunday best. So, All right. So indeed I did. Um, and we went over there and, um, you know, she, Miss Knight was, was reluctant to speak with me and she, you know, I could see her looking me over and, you know, what, what does this person want and, and why? And so I sort of pleaded my case and, you know, she, she said, okay, you know, come back tomorrow and I'll talk with you. So I went back, that was, that was in, in a period where you actually went to the airport office to change a ticket. So I went over to the <laughs> KLM office and changed my ticket um, and stayed on for a week more and interviewed her um, during the course of that week. Um, and then, and then uh, during subsequent um, research trips, um, sadly she passed away before um, the book was published. But um, I was um, able on my last trip to um, Accra to be able to give um, her granddaughter and daughter a signed copy of the book, which made me really happy. Um, in other instances, um, you know, switching over to the second half of the um, book, there's a case of an Afro-German family, um, the Annan family. Alfred Annan was the father. Frida Annan was the uh, German-Jewish mother. And mm -hmm. I had, you know, this huge, over 500-page archive related to their um, situation first in Germany, and they were ultimately deported to the United Kingdom to Hull. Um, and although they had their life, you know, that what they wanted for their lives was to, was to be sent back to the Gold Coast. Um, and so I had this one address for them in Hull. And so I went there and when I, when I arrived, I, um, discovered that it had been bombed, that the apartment block had been bombed, um, during the Hull Blitz during World War II. And, um, so I went over to the sort of equivalent of the county clerk office, um, and, and started looking through the records there and found, um, a birth certificate for their youngest daughter there. And that gave me her name. And then I eventually found a marriage certificate. Um, and that marriage certificate indicated um, that they were resident in Cardiff. And okay. so then I started searching the Internet for any descendants of the Anans in, in Cardiff. And um, I started coming up with all of these Facebook returns um, of people who clearly looked multiracial with the last name Annan. And I didn't have a Facebook account at that time, which is, this is the funny thing about how I actually started on Facebook, um, was that in order to write to them, I had to sign up for a Facebook account. So I did, and I, I messaged all of them and explained who I was, what I was doing, what kinds of archival materials I had found. And then I got this kind of flurry of responses from different people saying, yeah, that, you know, that's our... Uh, that's my mom and my dad, or that's my grandparents, because there's multiple generations that are still living there. And so, um, you know, I booked a ticket, a train ticket to Cardiff, and the next day I went to Cardiff, and I was received by four of the children um, that were still alive, and I interviewed uh, three of them extensively. Um, one of them didn't wish to speak with me, which is fine, but I was able to interview three of them. Um, and that really was so critical because the archival trail for this family ended in 1941 um, mm -hmm. and I did not know what, what happened to them. And it was, um, you know, their, their, their story was so gripping 
and so moving in terms of the challenges that they had faced um, in, you know, in Germany as it was coming under Nazi control and then being um, uh, uh, deported to, to Britain. Um, and, you know, I have all these letters that they were sending to the colonial office talking about, you know, just how rough and horrid their lives were and how much um, they wanted to um, be sent to the Gold Coast. But, of course, the Gold Coast uh, government um, would not uh, allow them. And one of the interesting things was that the, the children had no idea that their parents had fought for over a decade to be sent to the Gold Coast. They had always um, thought that their that the family in, in, in the Gold Coast didn't want them because their father had married um, a white woman. And I was actually able to show them this document that I have in which one of the family members in Accra had paid a small deposit to the colonial administration to secure um, to secure their arrival should they be sent there. Um, and I was, so I was able to show, no, they, you know, not only did your parents want to go there, but the family there was, was, was ready to receive you, which was something that they, you know, that they hadn't known. Um, and so that was really a wonderful thing to be able not only to have all of my answers uh, or all my questions answered by them in terms of what happened to the family um, and what happened to, especially to the parents, um, but also to be able to give them this, you know, these, this huge stack of archival documents that also was able to answer a lot of questions for them about their parents' lives and struggles. And that really shows reciprocity, you know, uh, you've given them something, they gave you something in return. Is that part of your philosophy as a scholar? Absolutely. That's the kind of key um, to, I think, the success of, uh, of this research project where um, people are really opening up to you about, um, you know, things that can oftentimes be very painful um, in their lives and, 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 and challenges that they face. Um, and, and so in, in going there and, and asking for people to kind of share with me um, those kinds of, of, of very personal details um, to be able to give something back to them, uh, I think is, is extraordinarily important, important. And I think it also um, builds a level of trust and shows how serious, I mean, when somebody shows up and they've got 500 pages of archival documents that were collected in, you know, um, you know, three or four different archives in Ghana and in the United Kingdom and material from Germany, you know, it shows I'm serious, right? Um, and so I think that that's been really important. And then the other thing in terms of reciprocity has, has always been to, to be able to say, you know, um, if you're not comfortable with me writing about certain things, I won't. Um, and it's not about, and it, and it, because none of these things change the um change the the outline of the story i mean certainly there were some things that were conveyed to me that i think probably would have made either a juicy or a more gripping read but mm -hmm. they weren't fundamental to the story and so when people would say you know x or y happened but please you know um i would prefer if you didn't write about that i always honored that um you know and so i think that that kind of um, ensuring that, you know, people feel like um, they can be fully honest and open with you, um, but also be clear about 
what they're not comfortable having um, printed, I think, is is really important. But I, but absolutely, I think the reciprocity thing is is so important, and I think it's why um, you know it's people when when we write, we really do have a duty to go back to those places and to those people and provide them with a copy of the book or provide them um, with copies of the materials that we've found because it's. You know, we, when we talk about, you you mentioned earlier sort of the issues that Africa faces, we think mm -hmm. about extractive industries all of the time, right? Right. Well, academia can be an extractive industry just like mining um, and all of the other ones. And if we don't give back, um, we can sit there and we can, um, you know, we can criticize Shell Oil in Nigeria and we can criticize, <laughs> um, you know, uh, the diamond companies in South Africa but you know we're no different if all we do is take and we don't we don't give anything back. That's a valid point. So, can you talk about the contributions of your work? What would you say would be the main things that that you're adding to the scholarship? So, I think a couple of a couple of points. One, I think is to really um sort of in a very fine-grained social history way um, to show the importance of race and race relations in a place like the Gold Coast Colony. So, you know, when we think about the literature on race in, in, in African history, mm -hmm. um, you know, we think of South Africa, we think of mm -hmm. Southern Rhodesia, um, and uh, we might think of Kenya, and there are other places. We might think of a place like Sudan, um, or we might think of, you know, a place like Algeria, um, where questions of race have been more um, central to, uh, to the scholarship. And I think, for me, um, what was really important was really being able to show um, how race was operating in a really significant way in an administered colony in British West Africa that had a very tiny white population, um, but nonetheless came to um, uh, be organized in really significant ways along racial lines, um, but in ways that really um, didn't kind of tally up or add up with the kind of infrastructure of everyday life and okay, the ways okay. in which Africans and Europeans um, were were you know so intimate with one another, and not I'm not just talking about sexual intimacy, but I'm just talking about the intimacy of everyday life in the domestic sphere and in in the workplace. I mean, Europeans were dependent on the Africans that surrounded them for everything, and that bred multiple forms of of dependency. Um, and in fact, I think that's one of the things that I hope I really the points that I you know make in the book is that. Um, sexual intimacy um, isn't what bred other forms of intimacy, and I think the colonial administration failed to understand this. Um, it was it was these pre-existing webs of, of, of interracial dependency um, and sociability and and work um, that gave way to um, interracial sexual relationships. And so the administration set out to end these relationships, but did not materially change the kind of infrastructure of everyday life, which caused Africans and Europeans to always be in, in such close contact. Um, and so I think that that's 
really what I wanted to to be able to to demonstrate and show um, were all of these other forms of intimacy that existed um, in the colony out of which um, came these interracial sexual relationships. Um, and so that I think that's really uh, important. I think one of the other things that I wanted to, to really drive home um, was when we think about the literature on empire and sexuality, um, oftentimes the perspectives, concerns, um, and interests of colonizing powers are what come out in that literature. Um, and uh, we often know far less about um, how colonized people thought about these relationships. And so as an Africanist historian, this was really important for me, was to be able to really show um, how, the, how people in the Gold Coast um, were thinking about these relationships, what their interests were in them, how they're, you know, how they use them in terms of um, advancing certain kinds of political agendas, um, and and to really sort of make the argument that, um, you know, their own social practices, um, interests, and perspectives were always at play in sort of shaping kind of how this sort of domain of interracial sexuality was unfolding in the colony. That it, that that Gold Coasters weren't simply um, reacting to what Europeans were doing. They had already historically wielded so much power within these kinds of relationships because of the, the sort of historic nature of these relationships dating back to a much earlier time period during the period of trade and in particular the slave trade. Um, and so this had already been a kind of arena in which um, Gold Coasters had, had wielded a lot of power. And so, you know, when the 20th century came around, that wasn't something that they were just going to give up instantly because the you know colonial government up and decided that it no longer wanted um, European men to have these relationships with local women. So really foregrounding African perspectives and interests and 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 um, agency within that realm was something that was really important. And then I would think the other thing that was also I think a significant intervention um, was to shift. To the other to the other side of the story. So when we think about empire and sexuality, typically we're we're reading about and we're thinking about European men with indigenous women, um, or in the context of the you know the Caribbean and the American colonies, indigenous and enslaved women. But rarely do we think about relationships between um, African men and European women, unless. You know, in the, in the context of the settler colonies, you have the work that's been done on um, the Black Peril scares, but that that that's that's work that's really done on the, a specter, right? Not actually on the relationships as they existed, only as they existed as a form of paranoia in the in the in the settler imagination. Um, and so, I I really wanted to think about okay, what did relationship between African men and European women in West Africa? look like during this time period. In order to write that history, what I had to do was expand um, my scope to, um, to Europe, where, okay. these, where these West African men were. Um, and largely during the um, interwar period, you're looking at um, West African men who are working as sailors on um, the shipping lines that are plying the Atlantic Ocean. And mm -hmm. many of them are settling um, in places like Liverpool, Hull, Cardiff, London, um, and, and they're marrying or having significant relationships with white women there. 
Um, and I should note that part of what drives them to settle in these British ports is because there's discrimination in the wage system um, where shipping lines will um, uh, hire men at a much lower wage when they sign on in the colonies and much higher um, wages when they sign in the, on, in the metropole because they assume that white men are signing on in the metropole and black men are signing on in the colonies. So this was a strategy to get around that. Um, and so they took domicile in, in, you know, in, in the different British ports. Um, and so I really wanted to be able to kind of get at that history. And it's, it's actually quite significant because in 1919, when you have the British race riots throughout these ports, um, and black men are beaten on the streets, um, in part because of their relationships with white women, this is something that captures the attention of people in the Gold Coast. Um, and it really triggers this kind of political critique of the sexual hypocrisy of colonial rule. How is it that, that, that black men can be beaten on the streets of Liverpool for having relations with white women when white men have been here for centuries along the coast having their way with our women and it's never given rise to violence? And then, it, and then it sort of moves beyond that kind of critique of sexual hypocrisy to actually um, begin to deliver a kind of anti-colonial argument um, about the, um, the, the lack of moral fitness that white men have for colonial rule. Um, you know, that they, that, they are, um, that, that, that it, they are the real sexual menace. Um, and I, I, I sort of use the term white peril to talk about <laughs> that. Um, and to talk about the way that this becomes a kind of, I think, very early form of, of anti-colonial um, uh, unrest and a kind of very uh, um, potent critique about the moral legitimacy of British colonial rule. And part of it has to do with the, the sexual licentiousness of white men. Um, and part of it has to do with a kind of critique of the fact that many of these white men, um, you know, abandon their, their mixed-race children. So if, if these men can't even take care of their own children, um, you know, why should they be put in um, a, a position, you know, kind of paternalistic position to, to take care of the rest of the colonial world? So they really, you know, so Gold Coast anti-colonial nationalists really begin to focus in on this question of, of interracial sex um, as, a, as a kind of key component of an, of, uh, an, an emerging anti-colonial critique. So that's, a, I think, another really important um, uh, point. But you only get to that, again, by moving outside and integrating this history of these relationships between black men and white women um, into this other more familiar history of relationships with white men and African women. And can you talk about the title, Crossing the Color Line, and its relationship to W.E.B. Du Bois? Yes. So, um, you know, the, of course, when we, when we think about the, the color line and we think about Du Bois, we think about, um, you know, the kind of, the, the, the sort of shorter, the shorter part of that quote, you know, which is that, you know, that the, 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 the challenge of the 20th century, the greatest challenge is, is, is going to be the color line. But if you read on, um, it's not, it's not a kind of, it's not, a, it's not the, the problem that he talks about is not a problem of the U.S. It's a global problem. And so he goes on to talk about all of the places um, in the world, including um, West Africa, where that is a problem. And so it was really trying to um, use this kind of familiar idea of the color line and apply it to a place 
that certainly Du Bois intended it to be applied to, um, and he had the wisdom to understand that even in a place like West Africa, where there was a tiny white um, population, that the color line was a, a huge problem. Um, but So that's the color line part of it. The crossing part of it was really wanting to be able to, on the one hand, show the way in which the color line is, the, the various ways in which the colonial administration goes about drawing this color line, right? And the very fact that it had to be drawn says something about the kind of incohate nature of it in the, it's in, in the first instance, right? That it didn't just sort of exist there naturally. That in fact, the, the way in which um, the European presence had historically been established in the Gold Coast meant that actually um, the, there, things were quite fluid across the racial, uh, across race lines. And so there was a lot of work that had to be done to draw this color line, right, and to, and to make it visible to people. Um, and even still, it was crossed continually, right? And so the, the book really is, is not just about the color line, but about the multiple ways in which it was constantly being transgressed by Africans and Europeans alike. Um, you know, and I use, again, I use the realm of interracial sexuality um, to make that argument, but, but it, it was not just being crossed um, in terms of, of intimate relationships or sexual int intimacy or sexual, it was being crossed um, in, in forms of everyday life that happened outside of the bedroom um, as well, and that were just as significant. And how do you see your work maybe addressing issues today that plague the U.S.? Well, I think for, you know, for me, the, when, I, when I think about, um, for instance, when I think about people's reaction to the book and um, why I think um, it seems to have captured people's attention, at least from, from what people say to me, um, I mean, of course, you know, one could make the argument that, yes, it's well-written, it's rigorously researched, um, there's compelling stories and all of that, and um, sure. But I think, to be quite honest and frank with you, I think there's something that's far beyond that um, that has to do with the moment that we're living in being a moment of of such deep racial divide, of, of such deep um, racism, uh, a moment in which um, white supremacy, um, w which has always been with us, but, but is so much more visible and evident where the kind of veneer um, that I think has kept things from bubbling over has been ripped off. Um, and we see all of this stuff coming out. And I think there's a way in which these stories of interracial families, um, <laughs> it, it, it captures people's imagination because on the one hand, um, we know we live in such a racially divided world and I think we're fascinated by these stories um, in which we see people crossing what has historically been the greatest divide in our country. And of course, those crossings are not always perfect. Um, and a lot of times those crossings reinscribe racial power. 
But when when we see instances um, of, uh, especially I would say, of, 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 of black and white unions um, in which those relationships seem to actually be loving, caring, lasting, affectionate, I think this is why... Um, the story of um, of the of the loving couple, you know, in the United States, um, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, is such a touchstone for us. When we see those examples, I think it captures our attention because we 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 realize that this thing is not insurmountable, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it gives it gives us a certain kind of hope. And again, I, I just want to go back to say that not not every story in my book um, gives us that sense of hope. But some of them do. And I think that that is why, you know, stories around sort of interracial relationships always capture people's attention um, because because we kind of innately know that this is this is our biggest our biggest challenge. Um, And so I think that that's to me, this book about these stories that take place you know, in, in colonial Ghana and, you know, in, in, in a place like Liverpool or Cardiff, um, which might seem sort of remote and far away, but they're actually just as relevant to the United States and to other places in the world, because these are, these are questions that all of us um, are, are facing. Thank you. Is there anything you like to bring out about your work that we haven't touched upon? Are there like book clubs, book discussions, you know, are you part of a growing trend now to talk about interracial relationships in the African context? Well, I think, I mean, I I certainly think that this, that this book is, is part of a growing body of scholarship that is attending to the question of race outside of the settler colony. So I think of, immediately I think of Jamima Pierre's work, which is an anthropological study, although it's certainly historically engaged, it's called The Predicament of Blackness, um, okay. you know, about sort of race in contemporary Ghana. Um, and uh, there's, you know, there's Bruce Hall's work on the Sahel in West Africa. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, Chuki El Hamel's um, beautiful book on Black Morocco. So there's, there, you know, I think that this is a small but growing body of, 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 of literature that is speaking um, to these questions. Um, I think that part of what um, is potentially, I think, um, unique about the book is, I I think, the way in which it really strives to um, tell the the stories of of everyday people in in a really kind of... um, in a way that gives you a sense of of what their their lives were like um, and the challenges that they face. And again, just going back to what we were just talking about, I think that that's what gives this book its um, why it seems to resonate with people today um, is because it, it 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 I think it goes beyond the surface and it really gives you a sort of sense of of the challenges that people faced and the ways in which they surmounted them. Um, and, you know, I, I think that especially, you know, in the context of Ghana, where um, I think on the one hand, people recognize that there's a long history of these relationships. Um, you know, people are familiar with the big 
Afro-European trading families that come out of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of friends who, you know, when they saw the book, they were really surprised. Like, wow, I didn't imagine you'd actually be able to write an entire book about this for the colonial period. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it seemed to be something that had been sort of consigned to, um, I don't know, like the sort of like a dirty little secret of colonialism, right? Um, yeah. And, and to actually see um, kind of how central this question was, I think has been a very interesting kind of eye-opener for um, a lot of people that have read the book thus far, especially um, in Ghana, and sort of really beginning to see in the ways in which um, these kinds of questions really were, were so central to sort of how the history of colonialism um, unfolded there. Um, and, and I think, you know, I do think it's really important to, um, you know, in, in the wake of the book, um, and I also I did this uh, some time ago, I, I, I worked on one of these popular genealogy programs, it's called Who Do You Think You Are? They have mm -hmm. a, a version of it here in the United States. Um, where I helped a young man who uh, is uh, sort of is a British DJ and television host, and you know he makes television programs. Uh, his name is Reggie Yates, fabulous young man. Um, and I helped him trace his family roots in, in in West Africa. And and along the way, we discovered that his great grandfather and great great grandfather were British. And so uh -oh. this this ended up airing. It aired on the BBC and has subsequently been replayed, you know, over the last I think two years. Um, and that has I think also sparked a lot of public interest in this history aspects of their mixed race family history. Um, and so I think that there is a growing public awareness um, of of these stories and the fact that um, that this history can be accessible. That you can find out about, um, you know, about members of your family, and I think especially in the United Kingdom, where sort of the ancestry com dot thing and family history thing is so big. But one of the things that we've realized over time is that, um, you know, it 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 does it's it's quite popular um, and accessible and big, especially for um, sort of white British people. But the access to, um, you know, those databases and sources and just knowing about them for people of African ancestry in Britain, there seems to be some level of, of, of there, there, there seems to be some disparity there. And so that has been one of the things that I've really enjoyed um, being able to do is to work with people and to show them, okay, you know, um, you know here, here's what's available for free. Here's what requires, um, a, you know, a membership to these ancestry websites, and mm -hmm. here's what's available. Um, and that that doing this kind of work, although it does involve some um, financial output, is not completely inaccessible. Um, so I, I think that has been something that I've I've quite enjoyed actually is being able to um, assist people to the best of my ability. You can't always do it. There's sometimes. People give you a name and and you know nothing turns up. But um, I think the the awareness of of mixed race family histories is something that I think has also come out of the book and out of this earlier documentary work that I did. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about where you are going as a scholar in terms of future work? Yeah. So right now I. Um, I've carved out a trilogy um, 
for myself. So three book projects that span the pre-colonial, colonial, and post-independence period that all take up in their own different ways questions around race, around identity, around blackness, the body. Um, and so the, the, the first one is um, Somatic Blackness, A History of the Body and Race Making in Pre-Colonial Ghana. The second one is Black on White, um, Articulating Race and Identity in the Gold Coast Press. And then the third one is Becoming Black Stars, um, uh, Race, the, sort of the, uh, what is it? Race and State Politics in 20th Century Ghana. Um, and so those, uh, those are three titles. For me, what, what these books are really doing or what these projects are doing are, are allowing me to really revisit the kinds of questions that I didn't end up exploring so centrally in Crossing the Color Line because of the way that I followed the archival thread and that it, it led me to pursue these questions around interracial sexual relationships. Really now wanting to return back to some of those foundational questions that I encountered over 20 years ago in Ghana about what what does it mean to be black in Ghana? Um, how how are the boundaries of blackness um, drawn and redrawn over time? How does blackness during the colonial period become rearticulated as a political identity in in opposition to white rich colonial rule? And then how during the era of independence and thereafter. Um, it, you know, does blackness get constructed in relationship to questions around citizenship and national identity in Ghana and, and the right to hold political power? And for me, that, that last piece is really central in terms of this question of political power and racial identity. And I think that's something that comes out um, around the, the presidency of J.J. Rawlings, um, who was mixed race in Ghana. Um, so that's, that's sort of where my, my work is taking me now. Well, we look forward to more wonderful scholarship that encourages us to think and allows us to see how a scholar is able to weave together many stories uh, using different sources and, you know, for great production. So congratulations again on Crossing the Color Line being shortlisted for the Fagan Oliver Prize. Thank you so much. It's wonderful talking with you, Don. And uh, I hope in the future we'll, we'll at least have one or two more conversations. Yes, I hope so too. Thank you. Thank you.